So, Mark. Yes? At a key point in this week's movie, our crew of heroes hears a cell phone ringing. And they find that cell phone in a literally steaming pile of poop. I was very surprised that poop saved the day in this movie. But steaming poop. There is a lot of vapor coming off of these big turds. That is a hot steaming pile of shit that must have just been deposited. Right, that's the thing. That's fresh out of the bottom. Which I guess makes sense, because the thing that dropped it does show up like 30 seconds later. Yeah. So, what I want to know is, you know, in this case, it's the Spinosaurus. But I'm wondering... What movie monster's poop would you most or least want to dig through in search of a cell phone, let's say? So, when I was thinking of the monster I least want to search through the poop of, the first thing that came to my mind was the fish man from The Shape of Water. That is also what I thought of! (laughs) Is it really? Yes! It's because he's too human. It would be like searching through another person's poop. Also, just like dug through an animal's poop. Everything about him is very wet, and yeah, it I would feel be like, like a fish poop, probably. I, I don't like know what that stringy. looks like, but I just feel like yeah, it'd be really sticky, and I don't want to like claw through that. That <laughs> that is wild. I can't believe we both, both had the same answer. <laughs> uh, wow! Wow! <laughs> <laughs> we're both we're both so shaken. We have nothing more to say. Um, oh my god! Incredibly, you know, this is the first movie in the franchise not directed by Steven Spielberg, and I think one of the ways you know Joe Johnston really paid attention to what made the original work is that he understood these movies have to have poop scenes because, of course, there is a major poop scene in the first movie where Laura Dern examines some like Stegosaurus poop, and I feel like the other directors have not had the same commitment to poop. That Spielberg and Johnston did. That scene is really gross, like, when you think about it. But then when you think about it again, granted, I didn't stick my bare arm deep into it, but I have dug through dog poop on so many occasions. Like, using the bag or wearing gloves. But when you have a dog, making sure that the things they consumed come out the other end is just part of it. And then one time... I picked up Shiloh's poop, and I thought she had upper intestinal bleeding because it was black. Yikes. And I was digging through it, and I called Nick in a panic, and he just goes, Oh, that's probably the dirt she ate last night. (laughs) (laughs) She just stood in the forest eating dirt, and we would pull her away, and she'd sneak back over and grab another (laughs) mouthful of dirt. I don't know what was in the dirt that was so intriguing, but there's a reason She also responds to the name Trash. I think the thing that so grabbed me about it in this movie is the steam. Like, in the first movie, I'm like, yes, that's a pile of dirt, but, like, it practically looks like a... That's a pile of poop, but it practically looks like a termite mound. Like, it makes sense to me, like, watching a scientist, even not a... Like, she's not a biologist or anything, but, like, watching a scientist have to dig through animals' poop. It's the steam that really sets me off. It's... This looks much more poopy than the stegosaurus poop yeah and i'm guessing the poop was not also designed by like stan winston but his crew talked a lot about trying to push for new levels of realism in this they were really proud that their animatronics blinked in this one and maybe steaming poop was a part of it do you think they built a spinosaurus 
robot that could itself poop steaming poops, just to really get the realism there. I would hope not, because that is money that could be better spent (laughs) elsewhere. Well, they spent $18 million preparing a version of this movie they didn't make, so, like, money was already going down the toilet. (laughs) Well, Like the poops! I was about to say, uh, if they wrote a scene where they watched the Spinosaurus poop out the satellite phone, (laughs) I wouldn't be that surprised. I'd be shocked. But I wouldn't be that surprised. To have written that scene, and it would not be in the movie, would require them to have had a finished screenplay, which they did not. At any point? (laughs) No. There were recurring jokes on set that the screenplay would be the rap gift. (laughs) Alright, so I think we've discussed poop, and now I want to hear more about this. So I think it's time to start the episode. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I am gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger, and this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. What's up with them dinosaur poops? And are these people actually dateable, or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, which is a good thing, because there's not much there, as we take a look at the original Dinosaur Threequel, Jurassic Park 3, directed by Joe Johnston, who of course designed the final fight scene in the 1986 film Howard the Duck. Are we? Did we watch this one because Jurassic World 3 is coming out? Yes, so... Was this one of our tie-ins? Yes, the Monday that this comes out... I'm so lost. The Monday that this comes out, we will all have joined noted Jurassic World fan Nicole Kidman to see the new Jurassic (laughs) threequel, Jurassic World Dominion. Ah, yes. Okay, that makes sense. You know how Nicole Kidman, like, once a week goes and just sits in an empty AMC to watch Jurassic World? Well, you know she does that much more often than that, because other people see movies when you're not there. Oh, that's true. I have so little interest in that series, but watching this intrigued me a bit. Okay, yeah, so what's your history with, like, the Jurassic movies? I don't know if you've read the books. We talked about Crichton a bit on our Congo episode. But, like, where are you on all of this? I've read Jurassic Park. I watched Jurassic Park when I was, like, three, and it left a deep emotional scar that took me until high school to build up the courage to watch the movie for real, and I enjoyed it. It's not one of my, like, top movies. It's nothing I've watched a million times, but I do like it, and the soundtrack is obviously a classic. And the Jurassic Park ride at Universal Studios, very fun. Good ride. It is no more. It's gone? It's been uh, reworked into a Jurassic World ride that is different. Oh, that's sad. But yeah, I've never seen Jurassic Park 2. This was my first time seeing Jurassic Park 3. And I have yet to watch any of the Jurassic Worlds, in large part because I felt like critical reception was fine. And then I heard about her heels, and it made me irrationally (laughs) mad. And then Colin Trevorrow made Book of Henry, which I haven't seen, but I heard about. And then I said, I have no interest in watching anything this man has done. I heard his Star Wars screenplay was good. I haven't read it, but I did see The Rise of Skywalker. I mean, it can't have been worse than Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. That's my thought. So I read the novel Jurassic Park the summer before I started high school. Because at the time, my high school did summer reading where there was this, like, the Friday of the first week of school was a half day, and it was called Literary Day. And so everyone at the end of the previous school year had to sign up for two books from a list, and you read the book. And then in the half day, you just have, like, two seminar things with people who read the same books as you. 
And w- Interesting. one of the books on the list that year was Jurassic Park. So I read Jurassic Park for that, really dug it, read The Lost World. And that year for my birthday, I got the Jurassic Park Adventure Pack DVD set. <laughs> was that all three? Yeah, it was the three movies on DVD. That is what I pulled out to watch this movie. I've seen it on your shelf. The DVD did not have trailers on the Jurassic Park 3 DVD. But it oh, did have, shame. in the bonus features, there was a recommendations page that was just pictures of DVD covers that they thought you would like if you liked Jurassic Park 3. <laughs> now, Will, I do have a question for you. Hang on. Do you, you want to know what the recommendations entirely. are? I mean, yes, I do. The recommendations are uh, Jurassic Park. Okay. The Lost World, that colon, tracks. Jurassic Park. That tracks. The Mummy. Uh, I'm Fair. The Mummy Returns. I guess. Jaws. I, I'm sensing a theme. And Dragonheart. Now, what the heck is that? <laughs> it's like a, a fantasy movie. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's like knights fighting a dragon. I think it's Dennis Quaid. That sounds awful. We should watch it. Uh, Dennis Quaid uh, is the dragon slayer. Sean Connery is the voice of the dragon. And David Thewlis is the evil king. I mean, sounds great. That sounds honestly worth watching. Pete Postlethwaite plays a monk? I don't know. This might be good. <laughs> <laughs> is this good? What was the reception? Let's see. Well, there's an accolades section. It was nominated for Best Visual Effects at the Oscars. Uh, 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, that's like the worst score. I can work with that. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars, saying, while no reasonable person over the age of 12 would presumably be able to take it seriously, it nevertheless has a lighthearted joy, a cheerfulness, an insouciance that recalls the days when movies were content to be fun. Add to that the impressive technical achievement that went into creating the dragon, and you have something to acknowledge. It isn't great cinema, but I'm glad I saw it. That... This this sounds like our kind of thing. We should watch it. All right. Dragonheart, just watch. Where are we? As of late April, Dragonheart is rentable everywhere. Yeah, I guess we do need to remember to keep checking if things are available. It sounds big enough that it would be... Yeah. Uh, great. So we found that. Anyway, you were saying something. Yes. This is a very important question because it is something I not thought about in years. Did you ever have deer time in high school? In high school? Drop or no, in elementary school. I missed Um, we never used the acronym, but I am familiar with the concept. And like there would be, I, I don't know, deer drop everything and read always sounded to be like it could come without warning. Like all of a sudden the teacher could shout deer and you drop everything and read. I didn't have anything like <laughs> now, that. That sounds much more fun. But there were times, especially when I was in like elementary school, where it was like read a book. Yeah, not high school. That was my favorite time because some of my teachers would like dim the lights and turn on special lights so it was a relaxing environment, like you're reading in front of a fire. Mark, do you know that Why don't we do that at the work day? Do you know that when I was in fourth grade, my teacher pulled my mom aside and was like, Will really struggles with reading comprehension. And my mom was like, No, he does not. And it turned out that I had been rushing through all of my work and not paying attention to it so I could read the books I had brought from home. Yeah, that tracks. For two years I was only allowed to bring nonfiction to school. That entirely lines up with who you are as a person. Yep. Oh my god. But Back to Jurassic Park 3. Yeah. I had not seen this before. It was very different than I expected. It doesn't have the scale of, especially the no. first movie. It doesn't even have the, like, philosophy or ponderous nature. The movie is just 
people go to island, dinos attack, they escape. Like, that's it. It's just a tight little thriller. It's 90 minutes long. Which is what the people who love this movie like about it. I, I did enjoy it. One of my biggest complaints is everyone had such basic names that I had no idea who anyone was at any time. Because I thought Billy was the kid for a while. No, Eric is the kid. Eric. I was like, who's Eric? Then the name of the guys, the like guy who was parasailing with them. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. It was something else. And then Grant. That one I knew just because of like he is a returning character, but still. Yeah. You know, when I was 14 years old and I watched these three movies in my Jurassic Park Adventure Pack, I liked all of them. And I have now rewatched all of them in the past, like, year and a half. And Jurassic Park, Stone Cold Classic, I watched it when I bought my current TV. I did a weekend of uh, only five-star movies to teach it what a good movie was. If TVs are smart enough to learn that, it means they might be a little too smart, for my opinion. But yeah, we watched Jurassic Park, Titanic, Fury Road, Curse of the Black Pearl, the Muppet movie. You are nothing if not predictable. And then I rewatched The Lost World, and The Lost World, I'm like, Spielberg is great at what he does, and that movie is pretty darn messy. I mean, everyone makes mistakes. And rewatching Jurassic Park 3 yesterday... Which I had watched several times. I'd certainly seen it more times than The Lost World. Because I was kind of like, oh, it's like a nice little thriller with dinosaurs. And I think some of it was, I was watching it on a DVD, which did not do it any favors. Yeah. But also, I mean, I just really struggled to connect to any of the characters in this movie. I think they all stink. Yeah, they're all bad people. uh, Alan Grant, great. Still like Alan Grant. But... Everybody else, I'm just like, what are you doing? Where even, like, Alessandro Nivolo is supposed to be, like, the young hottie paleontologist. But even with him, like, his plan is to steal raptor eggs and sell them, I guess, on the black market to fund what can only be a university research project. It's a lot. My favorite characters were the hyper-intelligent raptors. I assumed so. These people are dumb. In that the first thing they do after crash landing is immediately start yelling on an island full of dinosaurs. That would not be my first instinct. And yeah, they're all bad people. There's kidnapping. There's terrible mercenaries. I loved it. I mean, Grant is basically kidnapped. Yeah, that's it. Grant is kidnapped. He's lured across international borders under false pretenses. Yeah. It's so rude. And in the end, for him, this was all for nothing, because he still does not have any money for his dig. Like, he's gonna go back and not be able to do his research. It's so dumb. This poor man. He just gets beat up. This movie is all for naught, and the idea of this child surviving for eight weeks is mind-boggling. They should not have made it that long. But it is a great premise for a, like, young readers like chapter book kind of thing which is what they published when this movie came out okay that tracks there were but still three of them there was one about eric's eight weeks on the island there was one about eric and alan grant going back to the island to rescue teenage filmmakers that got lost there oh my god how why are the two of them the guys who have to do that great question how did these teenage filmmakers get to a remote island that's under heavy surveillance by the Costa Rican government? The third book has Eric and Alan Grant 
track down the Pteranodon from the final shot of the movie because they have to bring it home to Isla Sorna because it cannot continue to roost in a makeshift nest at Universal Studios theme park. That sounds so bad. (laughs) I did read the premise of Jurassic World Dominion where it's about humans having to learn to live alongside dinosaurs. And that does sound interesting, but also could be so ponderous. We will see. I will say, the Jurassic World movies, there's a lot to say about them. They are not philosophical. Okay, well, that's kind of good to know. I also just am currently struggling with anything that Chris Pratt is in because of the whole Hillsong of it all. Yeah. Every once in a while, I try to think, like, what's the last... The last great Pratt performance, I do think, is Onward. I think he's become a really good voice actor. Well, I mean, we'll see how he does as Mario. (laughs) My hopes are low for that. Whatever direction they're going with casting Chris Pratt as Mario, I do not want to see. I listened to uh, a podcast called The Great Debates that is two TV comedy writers that just debate random topics. And a couple of weeks ago... They had an episode where one of their debate topics was Mario and Luigi are related. And they debated that for five minutes before they remembered the name of the game was Super Mario Brothers. (laughs) Was that... Did they have other debates for the episode? Yeah. Okay, good. Literally brothers. Yeah. Well established. Mario Mario and Luigi Mario. Uh, There's a TikToker that... um kept talking about how Mario was a gay icon and an out gay man whose last name was Sunshine. (laughs) Like the game, Mario Sunshine. Like the game, Super Mario Sunshine. It even has a rainbow on it. And people were getting so mad. And there's like probably at least an hour's plus worth of TikToks of her just talking about and building out the Mario is a gay man legend where it ends where he is Mario Sunshine married to Luigi Smansions and they have to (laughs) pretend to be brothers because it was the 80s and people weren't accepting of gay people. I dig it. And that's the canon I now have for Mario. Luigi Smansions is maybe one of the funniest jokes I've ever heard. That rules. (laughs) So so for Jurassic Park, you really are the first movie and now you've seen the third one. Yeah. I have seen all of them. The Jurassic World movies I have seen once each in theaters. I think Fallen Kingdom is like half of a really fun movie. (laughs) What a very specific way of describing Uh, it. I specifically mean the second half of the movie is really fun and the first half is boring. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. The problem is like, the problem that a Jurassic World movie has to answer is, why would anybody do this again? Yeah. And part of the thing is like, Jurassic Park was such a huge hit and so culturally resonant that from the moment the original Jurassic Park came out to now, there has always been a Jurassic Park movie in development. And like, there were 15 years between Jurassic Park 3 and Jurassic World, but for that entire time, they were working on what was initially being developed as Jurassic Park 4 and eventually became Jurassic World. Why did it take so long? They kept, like, throwing out ideas. They kept, like, working on stuff for a while and deciding it didn't work. The Jurassic Park 4 thing for a long time was going to be, like, human-dinosaur hybrids. And there was going to be, like, a Black Ops team of, like, part-human, part-raptor people. I do love that they realized that the only logical next step to justify why there would be dinosaurs, in part, is the U.S. military wants to turn them into soldiers. Yeah, But, like, it was kind of going to lean into, like, 
sort of the more violent strains of this movie. And they wanted to get off the island. Yeah. I mean, this is probably more of, this is just a horror movie more than anything. Like the first one wasn't really a horror movie. It had horror elements. Yeah. The T-Rex sequence is so one. good. I love them calling it out at the very beginning of this movie. I assume they did it in the version that you watched where like the Amblin logo dissolved with the rippling water effect. Yes. The, the glass in the original movie. Yeah, that was great. Uh, I enjoyed that the T-Rex died. Yeah. I thought it was fun to have a new antagonist. I thought it was a little fast. It was like, it felt very cursory in a like, there's the whole thing in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood about how um, Leo's character always plays a heavy in an early episode of Western TV shows who can get offed to show how serious the new char- the new lead is. Mm-hmm. It felt a little like that with the T-Rex. Yeah. Much about this movie does feel rushed. I will say, what's cool about the T-Rex Spinosaurus fight is that they did have animatronics. They built the Spinosaurus. Stan Winston, uh, his special effects team, built that. And they hauled out a T-Rex that they had used for the Lost World. And it was like one of the last days of shooting. And they figured, we're not going to use these robots again. So they just had them wail on each other (laughs) until they were done. And finally, the Spinosaurus ripped off the head of the T-Rex. That's I would love to watch that in person. Yeah, I would love, like, the the DVD should have had just all of the behind-the-scenes footage of dinosaur fights. So when they're running in the herd, those are p- CGI. Those are digital, I'm, yeah. Because that scene of watching them trying to just, like, guess where the dinosaurs would be and, like, throw themselves out of the way. If you look closely, you can sometimes see them just falling over like they got pushed, but there's no dinosaur there. It was very amusing. In a lot of scenes like that, they had pictures of the dinosaurs on sticks that they would wave at the actors. <laughs> yeah, I figured there was something. There must be some sort of reference, but you could tell it's not perfect. And it was kind of entertaining. The original Jurassic Park movie was revolutionary in the way that it used CGI. And the most prominent use of it is in a scene where there's like a dinosaur stampede and some of them are trying to run in it. So this is kind of recreating that sequence a lot of the close-up stuff that you see of the main dinosaurs in this one like the the spinosaurus that's Mm. all animatronics anytime you see a full body it's digital yeah except for the raptors because the raptors are people in suits oh that's kind of cool yeah if you want to have a good time you should look up photos of people in just the raptor suit bottoms i loved all the raptor stuff in this movie just try to justify the raptor behavior from the first movie not being scientifically accurate. I'm pretty sure I read that raptors are, like, particularly dumb. Also, these are not velociraptors. Yeah, uh, I don't know about that. I do know that the raptors look different in this one. They made them more avian in this one because the bird theory was more widely accepted by that point. I did hear about the hand wave in Jurassic World where they were just like, well, people don't expect the dinosaurs to have feathers. Right. They're like, we made the dinosaurs that people want to pay us a lot of money to see. Yeah. Which, you know, I also liked in this, it's building on in this movie when Grant is giving his presentation and he's like, I don't want to talk about Jurassic Park. I don't want to go to those islands because those are not dinosaurs. Those are science experiments that John Hammond Mm. made. If you want to know about real dinosaurs, you have to study paleontology. It's always funny when you see a movie where they acknowledge, like, this wasn't swept under the rug and everyone knows that there are just islands out there with dinosaurs on them. It works as the central tension of both movies. Like, it's Grant 
does not care about the islands and also does not want to go back there. And right. That actually was part of the issue they kept running into with their screenplay ideas, where they kept coming up with screenplays that are like, there was one where it's like, Grant is living on the island, like a Robinson Crusoe kind of thing, just like studying the dinosaurs. And they're like, well, no, he he would not do that because he hates the dinosaurs he met in Jurassic Park. Yeah. And then in Jurassic World, like the like the problem in Jurassic World is that like tourists have gotten tired of the dinosaurs they have there. So they're trying to clone new ones, but they are also trying to genetically engineer new types of dinosaurs. And they're like, yeah, everything we do has been genetic engineering. We have not made any normal dinosaurs. So now we're going to make one that is a combination T-Rex and Velociraptor. And I'm sure it just goes great. I Anyway, uh, Jurassic World uh, Dominion, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. The boring part is when they go back to an island for the fifth movie in a row and don't have that much going on and don't really use animatronics at all. And it's just CGI dinosaurs, which is the biggest problem with the Jurassic World movies. And the good part then is when some dinosaurs are taken from the island as it is like collapsing in on itself and are brought for like a black market auction in an old mansion on a cliffside. And one of them gets out. And then it's kind of like a haunted house movie, but the ghosts are dinosaurs. That does sound fun. Yeah, that's the best part of either movie. One thing I love is that in that movie where they have to, like, save the dinosaurs from going extinct or something, I just love the idea of Grant somewhere else just being like, that island's gonna kill all the dinosaurs. Good. Good. They should all die. That's what he would think. That is exactly my mind perception of that for him. Yeah, he's going to be back in Jurassic World Dominion. And it's very important to me that he be as grumpy and pessimistic as he is in this movie. Like, I don't want them to try to retrofit, like, a cultural memory of what he was like in the first movie. Like, make him cranky and a little bit mean. I do not want him liking the dinosaurs. No. And I'm worried... I think people's memory of him is liking dinosaurs. Well, yeah, he likes dinosaurs, but he does not like these dinosaurs. Right. So, like Uh. I said, the first version of this movie was going to be Grant snuck on the island and, like, is living there. But then they were like, no, he would never do that. When it was initially announced, Michael Crichton was supposed to write the screenplay. But according to interviews with Joe Johnston, that never came close to materializing. So the first, like, full script that they had was by Craig Rosenberg, and it focused on teens marooned on Isla Sorna. Okay. I can see how that evolved into what we got. The big dinosaur in that one was a Pleosaur, which is like the Loch Ness Monster one. Mm-hmm. And that one got dropped. Joe Johnston said that it felt like a bad episode of Friends, and I would love to know what that means. Oh my god, now I really want to see. I would like to see the cast of Friends do this movie. Now that... I would also like to see. They have a paleontologist. In 2001, like the cast of Friends do this movie. At the height of their fame and power. Yeah. So then they threw out that script and they hired Peter Bookman to make the next one. And that one was a split narrative. On the one hand, there were dinosaurs attacking the mainland. And so people are trying to deal with dinosaur attacks coming in. And then Grant in this one has been trying to establish a research station on Isla Sorna. But he can't get permission to do it. And Mm -hmm. in this one, like, a bunch of tourists over the course of months have gotten lost around the island. So he makes a deal with the State Department where they're like, we're going to go in and find these people. We need a dinosaur guy. We will help you 
establish your research station on this island if you be our dinosaur guy. And he's like, okay. So this one is pretty close to the ultimate movie. They just get rid of the dinosaurs attacking the mainland stuff. Uh, David mm-hmm. Kep, who wrote the first movie, was the one who was like, yeah, this is too complicated. Just keep the rescue plot. This version also would have left Grant on the island because they just could not get away from like, Grant wants to be on the island. Yeah. I do like the idea of the State Department having to call him in to rescue. As opposed to a weird appearance by Marines at the end of the movie. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. No. But like, if the US government isn't allowed to bring people, but they send a black ops team to rescue these American tourists... And it then is sounds it that's just predator, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with dinosaurs, good movie. <laughs> I mean, by the time they moved on from this split version of the script, they were weeks out from shooting. They had spent eighteen million dollars. They had made all the storyboards. They had started building a bunch of the sets. I cannot believe how difficult it was to write this movie. But it also just like it was that period where like Spielberg is like an active producer on this movie where he just had like a bunch of projects going on. They're getting DreamWorks up and running and basically just like kind of whatever he wanted would happen. He got 20% of the box office on this movie. Oh my God. Yeah. The ultimate example of that is on war of the worlds. He and Tom Cruise together got 50% of box office. That's absurd. Yeah. So this is like right in that window where war of the worlds is like 2005. This is 2001. Mm -hmm. So at that point they scrapped this screenplay And they hire, who else, but Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor. Alexander Payne, writer of the movie Election? Yes, and Jim Taylor, co-writer of the movie Election. Oh, what a weird choice. So this would be between Election and Sideways. Oh, my God. They are hired to write Jurassic Park 3. Wow. Okay, that's a choice. Yeah, and then they wrote most of what is in this movie, but like I said, they're was never really a finished script. They pretty much only shot what is in the movie. Johnston said he did like a ton of internet interviews because this is like right when the internet is starting to grow. And like there was a a fan site anticipating the release of Jurassic Park 3 that like collected all the news articles and stuff like that. And Joe Johnston started emailing them and answering their questions because it was that era of the internet. (laughs) That weirdly makes sense. Like I said earlier, Joe Johnston said there was this joke on set that the screenplay would be a rap gift on the last day of shooting. I like this quote from William H. Macy, who gave a very angry on-set interview at one point, where he criticized them for not having a finished script, for the slow pace of shooting because of all the effects shots. And Mm. there was this quote that I loved. Who launched a hundred million dollar ship without a rudder, and who is going to be fired? That is such a good line. Yeah. He and Joe Johnston both later on were like, it was a really rough day on set and the actors did a lot of their own stunts and were like bruised constantly and cold all the time from all the rain shots. Mm -hmm. In later interviews, Macy in particular offered really extensive praise for the animatronics. He was like, it's kind of unbelievable working with these things. As soon as they're going, you feel like it's a real thing in front of you. And like I said, the Winston crew was really proud of what they had come up with. The fact that they could blink. These ones breathed like... If you, like, went up, they, like, kind of had a heartbeat that, like, expanded and contracted their chest cavity. It's really cool stuff to see. I'm going to put some photos on our Twitter page the week that this comes out. They were cool. Yeah. I never get tired of looking at those effects stuff from Winston. They're the coolest. No, I enjoy them. In one of the photos that I'm putting on, I'm pretty sure, you can see a gorilla head from Congo on the shelf. 
That's funny. Yeah. I love Congo. Congo, good movie. Is it? No. <laughs> Congo, short movie. Yes. It is funny. I For some reason, I, you would just assume, like, Crichton movies would be so long. Because his books, like, meander down these weird paths. But I think the writers of the movie seem to know where to cut. Because you need to cut. I mean, I think... the Part of the thing is, like, it's not true of all of them that they're short. Like, Sphere is over two hours. Oh, but I have I heard Sphere is good. I like in the book Jurassic Park when there's just multiple pages of DNA strands. Those are fun. Those are funny. And some stuff from the first Jurassic Park book is in this. Like, the Pteranodon stuff, the pterodactyl cage, that is from the first book. Oh. It's a good set piece. Yeah, not exactly what happens. There's no yeah. Billy, of course. There's no parasailing as part of the <laughs> sequence. You know, I was on board. <laughs> At the turn of the millennium, it was important to have extreme sports in your movie. The extreme sports in this movie. The fact that he brings the parasail with them and then parachutes off is so good. You know what I like about the parasail? The company is called Dinosaur. So, is this just a company that specializes in parasailing in dangerous water where pteranodons can swoop you at any moment? I mean, I think what the deal is, is they are a company that specializes in, like, parasailing around Isla Sorna. But I don't think there's an active threat of pterodactyls or anything because I think they're all in the caged area. And it's not until the fight that goes on in there that the cages are broken open. Yeah, but what eats the people in the boat? At the beginning, then. No, something else got him, I think. Oh, maybe there's water dinos. Yeah, I mean, Spinosaurus, we're pretty sure, was semi-aquatic. Like, we think it spent about as much time in water as, like, alligators. It probably could have swum out that far. But that is something they never really address, is what happened to the boat guy. Yeah, it's a weird dangling threat. Yeah. The Spinosaurus uh, idea was because they felt like, we've done two big T-Rex movies. It's time to get somebody else in there. Uh, they had Jack Horner, who's a famous paleontologist, and like sort of the inspiration for Alan Grant in the book. And they basically were like, yo, Jack, uh, what's a good alternative for the T-Rex? And he's like, oh, it's Spinosaurus is the biggest carnivore in land history. It was about 50 feet long. That is, I, it did not look even that big in this. But I guess when it was compared to the T-Rex. Yeah. That's crazy how big that is. In some interviews, Horner did say that he thinks the T-Rex would likely win that fight in real life because Spinosaurus mostly ate fish, so it doesn't need Mm. as much crushing power in its jaws. It's a great shot when it snaps the neck, though. Yeah. Why do they have such tiny arms? I don't know. It's so weird. (laughs) Maybe they had, like, big moth wings coming off them. I don't know. They're so little. It's so weird. I saw one new theory is if they go into a feeding frenzy, like some animals, and they have bigger arms, their arms would get ripped off by the other T-Rexes. Interesting. Feeding That's frenzying. Cool. Yeah. So then the arms had to be short to avoid getting pulled off. Um, Jurassic Park 3 is, is the lowest grossing movie in franchise history, but it still made a bunch of money. Yeah, it didn't seem to do poorly. No, it did fine. It opened July 18th, 2001. It made $180 million in North America. It basically made the same internationally. So it cost a little under $100 million. So, you know, that's a good little profit for it. It was nominated for a Nebula Award for Best Science Fiction Film and lost to AI Artificial Intelligence. Isn't that also Spielberg? Yeah, that one Spielberg directed and is kind of incredible. Yeah. Have you seen AI? 
I watched it when I was younger, and it really freaked me out. So I have trouble bringing myself to watch it again. It's so good. It was so creepy. Yeah, it features Jude Law as a shiny sex robot. I mean, now you're speaking my language. It's it's a pretty great movie. It was also nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst Remake or Sequel and lost to the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. That is so weird that this got a Razzie because I don't think it's that bad of a movie. I was really disappointed with it on rewatch. Like I said, I found the characters deeply uninteresting, but... It's certainly much better. It's certainly much better than the Burton Planet of the Apes. I just, I mean, when you think about some of the other stuff that gets Razzie nominations. I mean, they nominate good stuff all the time because the Razzies are terrible. Yeah, they are terrible. I I used to be interested and now I have fully come around against them. All right, Mark, do you want to make any predictions for Jurassic World 3 right now? Uh, You, Nicole, and I will Um, have already seen it. I think that people will be killed by dinosaurs. Um, I think that Laura Dern will uh, shine bright, brighter than the others, just like she does in this movie, and manage to steal the show. It is one of the only reasons I'm considering watching it. Oh, this is interesting. So Jurassic World is one of the movies that Nicole Kidman watches in our beloved AMC video. And that sequel is coming out this year. Creed is another one that she watches when we learn that heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Creed 3, also coming out this year. She watches La La Land. The new Damien Chazelle is coming out this year. Babylon. Is Nicole 3 for 3 on just prepping for 2022 movies? Well, I mean, that might not be a coincidence. I don't think so, just because I don't think, frankly, that they were thinking, like, ah, we gotta, like, get everyone hyped for Babylon. (laughs) The new Damien Chazelle movie about the silent era. Okay, that's fair. But also, like, how did they pick the movies? I don't know. Someone must have paid someone. That's, that's like, the only thing I can think of. What I was trying to look for was the... Because in the short version of the Nicole Kidman video, she watches A Star is Born. It looks like the Bradley Cooper, Leonard Bernstein movie will not be out this year. Ah, so she she doesn't have a perfect score. Yeah. But that short version is no longer shown, so maybe she realized it. <laughs> okay. Well, Will, should we start diving into the romance of yes, this the, movie? The robust romantic plotline of Jurassic Park 3. All right. <laughs> Which, Let's again, I think is those. probably the most romantic except for the first one, the first Jurassic World. Yeah. It's not very romantic, though. Again, as we said, all the characters are terrible and empty. You know what? The Lost World... Ian Malcolm has gone to the island in part chasing his ex-girlfriend, who's played by Julianne Moore. So that one huh. is maybe as romantic as this one. Hmm. I didn't know that. Oh, you don't know? The Lost World is the one that prominently features Julianne Moore and Richard Schiff? I did not know that. That is fascinating. These movies are weird. Um, all right, so, so weird. Uh, point number one. At the beginning of this movie, right after our prologue where someone is harmed by a dinosaur which is how these movies all start we go to alan grant and ellie sattler they're just going to be our first point so you know mark's been working with the state department now yeah what do they do mark uh it's international relations mostly treaty law things like that uh-oh oh here oh, the wild okay. one okay you guys uh you gotta catch up thanks great guy so what are you working on now? Raptors, mostly. 
favorite. Do you remember the sounds they made? I try not to. So it was interesting reading about the making of this movie because there was an early version of it where Grant and Sattler were in the process of divorcing. And like in the book, they are dating. But I have never read the movie Jurassic Park that way. Like there's a weird flirtation thing with Sattler and Ian Malcolm, the Jeff Goldblum character. And clearly Grant isn't wild about it. But I've always read that as just like Grant hates Ian Malcolm. I can't remember, but I didn't remember them being together. And I didn't know if I was supposed to feel like, oh, these two finally got together and have a kid and then it was a twist or they were just friends. I think certainly that is kind of what the writers and Joe Johnston probably intended because they talked so much about how they had thought about having them be like splitting up. Like they very much spoke in interviews about like, as we all know, this was a relationship. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny, I actually read more romance, or at least, like, real affection in their relationship in this one than in the first one. Yeah, I mean, they act like they're exes that are on good terms. And there are a lot of good touches of that, like, how the movie tells us about the status of their relationship at this point. Like, when Ellie introduces Grant to her husband, and you're like, oh, they've been apart long enough that he has never met her husband. I mean, they clearly are not close. Like, they care about each other, but... They're not close. And I at least get the sense that, like, this is the kind of, like, I don't know. This reads to me like a situation where Sattler has invited him over a million times, and this is the first time he's come. Yeah. Granted, we are putting more thought into it than this movie seems to. (laughs) Sure. But so, like, they have these kind of uh, awkward conversations. He's upset at one point that the bird no longer knows his name, her parrot. Yeah. He does get along well with her kids, though. Yes. Her son. Well, they both care about dinosaurs. That's what works. Right. And that itself is a reflection of a change from the first movie where he really does not like hanging out with kids. No. But I guess if there, he learned. A little he bit. He learned to like kids through the trauma of that. The other piece of this relationship is that on the island, in the course of this thriller, he uses the satellite phone to call Laura Dern. And be like, hi, I'm on an island with dinosaurs. You need to help get us off. And within an unspecified but seemingly short amount of time, Laura Dern is on the beach with the Marines. No, she doesn't go. Oh, is she not there? I think it's her husband that shows up. I mean, that makes more sense. We're told he he's a State, State Department, Department lawyer. Yeah. But I don't know. It, I mean, the ending of this movie is very abrupt. Uh, yeah. Indeed it is. Um, I just want to say i did appreciate his very cordial and even friendly relationship with her new husband yeah absolutely there was no weird animosity none at all but the thing is like there's not enough of them to make it multiple points so that's just alan grant and ellie sattler seems like they dated and have broken up yes that's about it and grant is pretty much alone except for his latest wave of graduate students which includes Alessandra Navolo as Billy. Point number two. Billy, I don't think I'm doing this right. Let's try the toothbrush. You gotta go slowly. Just take a little bit at a time. I can never tell what's rock and what's bone. Technically, it's all rock, but calcium in the bones is replaced during fossilization. 
I think I'm feeling the difference, eh? Rough. Smooth. Rough. Smooth. I don't remember what this point refers to. Okay. But you remember Alessandro Novolo? Yes, I do remember Billy. Billy, yeah, you know, the guy who wants to save their research expedition by stealing Velociraptor eggs, selling them on the black market, and then using them to finance a university dig. Yeah, because uh, someone would be so happy to hatch Velociraptor eggs for themselves. I mean, look, do I believe someone would buy them for a lot of money? Sure. I mean, yes, they would. And then they'd probably not even get them to hatch. That would even fit well in the world of the books. I mean... In the novel Jurassic Park, John Hammond is, like, nefarious is too strong a word, but he is, like, the worst kind of, like, techie, like, we can do this so we should attitude. Whereas, like, he's very avuncular in the movies. He's like, oh, look at the nice old man who just wanted to create dinosaurs. In the Mm. book, he's, like, a dude who developed a, like, super pygmy elephant to, like, take around and show investors. And, like, it had a horrible life. Yeah, he's not a good person. Especially in the book, yeah. I like having an, a human antagonist. Yeah. Which this movie kind of lacks. I, I agree with that. Like I said, I just, I I didn't have enough to latch onto with the characters. I certainly did not have enough to latch onto with Billy. Yeah, uh, he had his face going for him. I, I just, I liked his face when he had a face and his brother had his face off. <sighs> so... Who is that lady, as you have credited her in point two? Point number two, I wrote Billy and that lady. We are introduced to Billy on the dig site, brushing off bones that are still in the earth of what looks like an incredible find. It's basically a complete skeleton in the earth, the kind of thing that you basically never find like that in paleontology. Like This would be a huge deal. That they've found this. This would be like international news level. Yes. I would like to point out, Billy keeps lying across it. He keeps like resting his arms or stretching his legs like across this like perfect intact skeleton. He's not a very good archaeologist or paleontologist. Yeah. But anyway, he is working on it with this young woman and he like, he just keeps like, Showing her, like, no, 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 like, use the toothbrush instead. The brush you're working with isn't working. And he keeps, like, very, like, sort of, like, intimately guiding her hands across the bones. Like, see how you can feel the difference between the bone and the rock. He's clearly flirting with her. Yeah, and that she never shows up again. Because right, he nor gets is too she mentioned or by the future of paleontology, his true love, 3D printing. I mean, he's not wrong. This does serve as a useful thing for them. It does. It's just so funny when, before they showed what it was, he was just like, the future of paleontology, and they walk in, and I was just like, oh, it's a a 3D printer. It's literally a 3D printer, yeah. Yeah, but they don't say that. Like, what were those invented? This does seem earlier than I would have thought for a 3D printer. I would believe that, like, the first versions of them had probably been developed, but they were still, like, rare. The concept was apparently, uh, now I'm on Wikipedia for 3D printing. The concept was first described in a 1945 short story. (laughs) The first patent for what is basically 3D printing was issued in the 70s. So, like, the idea was bouncing around, but they didn't become, like, like, the first ones that you could really get start showing up in the 90s. So, like, it is plausible that, like, Billy could know about it and somehow, like, (laughs) have gotten one, I guess. Yeah, and somehow use it to make uh, what is it? A the resonating chamber, vocal box, voice box. Yeah, basically. 
that they then use to confuse the raptors? Yeah, because I, I get it for the raptors' perspective. They're like, how did this thing know how to talk to us? Yeah, it's weird. One question that really is existing throughout this movie is like just how intelligent are raptors? They don't do a very good job of answering it. In his presentation at the beginning, Grant basically says, like, raptors are probably the smartest non-human animal to ever exist. But, like, we see them communicating for basic things that animals would communicate for. For, like, coordinating for hunting, for calling for help, for things like that. But then there's the stuff like, the trap that the raptors lay with the dead body, that's a trap that would only work on social animals. It's like, yeah, something has been killed and like, oh no, look, it's moving, it's waving. It only works if people have, like, kinship bonds and are gonna go and help it out yeah and also i feel like with the egg thing they wouldn't understand the concept of a trade and just like taking the eggs away understanding a trade or even like retaining like these particular people have the eggs yeah it's a lot yeah and like how smart the raptors are is a thing that they had been teasing since the first movie especially in the second one they've continued to play around with it a little bit in jurassic world and I think it benefits them to never nail it down because the answer is always just as smart as the story needs. Yeah. We are pretty sure there were dinosaurs that, like, used resonant chambers to communicate. Like a Parasaurophilus, which is those those dinosaurs with, like, the big sort of, like, one big like, kind of horny thing off the end of their head. Mm-hmm. We're pretty sure that was hollow and that they could kind of, like, vocalize sounds backwards through their head like that. That's so cool. Yeah. Okay. So, point three. All right, so the rest of our points are going to deal with the couple of William H. Macy and Madam Secretary herself, Taya Leone. It's so weird. William H. Macy, of course, an unindicted co-conspirator in Operation Varsity Blues. I still have no idea how he got away, like got out of it. I think, honestly, uh, William H. Macy is married to Felicity Huffman, who is charged in Operation Varsity Blues, the college admission scandal. I genuinely think it probably just came down to, like, they couldn't prove he knew. Like, I think it was probably Felicity Huffman was the main point of contact with, like, these shady dudes who would help cheat your kids into college. And William H. Macy probably knew about it, but isn't charged because he, like, wasn't on the emails or anything. Yeah, I guess if you can't really prove it. I thought he was on the emails, though. I don't know. I just know that the FBI documents refer to him as husband. Yes, which is really funny. And you get where, like, this is clearly FBI procedure, but we all know who this is. Yeah. It's Academy Award nominee William H. Macy. (laughs) Oh, my God. Who, in this movie, uh, owns a store and is divorced from Taya Leone. Amanda and I just love the outdoors. Heck, we've been on just about every adventure tour they can come up with. The Nile, uh, Galapagos... We even have two seats reserved on the first commercial flight to the moon. And uh, for our wedding anniversary this year, we wanted to do something really special. Something, something... Once in a lifetime. So, I've chartered an airplane to fly us over Isla Sorna, and we'd like you to be our guide. Right, they're from Enid, Oklahoma. They run a paint and tile store, but we're introduced to them in Montana at the dig site, where they say, hi, we're like an adventurous married couple, and we would like to pay you to give some commentary while we have an anniversary flight over Isla Sorna. Yes, and they offer an absurd amount of money, which he does not cash the check before leaving. Uh, Joe Johnston was asked about that in an interview, and he's like, well, you see, when you watch the movie, it's night when that happens, and it's day when they're on the plane, so clearly he did not have time to cash the check. Okay, fair, but still. 
I'm just saying, you don't get to be the guy who directs the Dark Lord of the Universe sequence from Howard the Duck without being able to think through how all these pieces fit together. Oh my god. Okay, so they're divorced. Yes, that's uh, like a twist. It's not until they're the on twist. the island because their kid went missing because he was on Dinosaur. And they're like, no, our kid went missing and no one will go look for him. So we're going to come look for him. And we have effectively kidnapped you because we brought you here under false pretenses. You have to help us find our kid yeah. on this island. And he's like, yeah, I've never been to this island. Because this is Site B. Wait, from- there's a second Dinosaur Island? So, Mark, you did not watch The Lost World. No. Where you would know there's a Site B. So, Site A is Island Ublar in the first movie. That's like where the park was. Mm-hmm. So the second and third movies are not actually set at Jurassic Park. They're set at Site B, which is basically where all of it the... It seems to like, just be the science part. It's where the research was actually done. So it's a retcon that says all of the researchy stuff you see in the first movie is mostly for show for tourists. And like the actual work of like cloning and raising the dinosaurs, for the most part, happens on another island. See, I actually find that very plausible. Yeah. If you can afford one island, you can probably afford a second island. So that's the deal with that. So it turns out they are divorced. We're told they've been divorced for about a year. I believe the movie leads us to think that the dude who was parasailing with their no, son. No, that's her ex. That, well, not that's, ex. That's late boyfriend. boyfriend. Yes. Yeah. The movie never says it like, outright, but it's clear. It's like a bonding trip between her new beau and her son. Yeah. He's only ever referred to as a family friend, but the way they talk about him, it's clear, like, this yeah. is a dude. But then this kind of brings us to point four, where they have to go on an adventure together and learn to love each other again. But, I guess. like, barely. I think so. Barely. Yeah, point number four like, is just, like, <laughs> them on the island where they are remarkably chill with each other. Yeah, they don't fight. They do the classic, it's nothing I haven't seen before when they're changing. For some reason, they are changing. For some reason, they're just going to get muddy again. And it's around this point where I was like, oh, I'm not really enjoying this movie enough. Because the human characters really just have nothing to them. There's not really conflict among them as much as the movie might think there is. Like, these people are getting along too much. They have no real tension between them. So you're just like... I guess the tension is like, are they going to find the kid? I think that's the conflict we're supposed to focus on, in which case they didn't need to make them divorced. Like, just a normal couple would have been fine here. I think it works better if they're, like, on the rocks, but not divorced already. Yeah. But because instead, you've got the stuff where, like, there's that whole conversation where she's like, yeah, Eric would have been better off with you than with me. You drive five miles under the speed limit, and I've totaled three cars in three years. And I'm like, you've totaled three cars in three years? The state should intervene I'm like, here. You should not be allowed to drive. Yeah, her license should have been revoked. Yeah. So I'm like, we're just rolling past very alarming things as the <laughs> characters are just like very nice to each other and they keep gazing longingly at each other. And I'm like, wh- why did you get divorced? I have no sense of it. It seems like you're pretty much fine. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Like by the time they escape the pterodactyls and they've found their kid, they're on the boat. Tilione is just like looking thoughtfully and impressed at William H. Macy. Yeah. I do think we need more movies where children's parents don't get back together as the happy ending. And this movie does not explicitly say that that happened. Yeah, that's also true. They might just be friends after. So, point number five. After the uh, fight with the Spinosaurus on the river, where William H. Macy is hanging from a crane during most of the fight. 
Mm-hmm. I think this was the day that he got interviewed and was like, this movie sucks. I mean, that's fair. Um, when he gets back down, T. Leone is like, you can't leave me like that. I'm not going anywhere through his big mustache. And then there's a big family hug. Oh, my God. There's no kissing the, in this movie. There's no kissing. And then I guess they all live happily ever after. I guess. So, Will, do you find the romance believable? I mean, not really. I find the Grant stuff believable. I guess I find Billy believable. I don't really find Terry Leone and William H. Macy believable, and that's most of the romance. Yeah, it's just so empty. Which is how I feel about most of the humans in this movie. Like, I like Grant. He has this weird, intense energy. It feels like 90s Sam Neill, like the Sam Neill of the piano or in the Mouth of Madness. And I like that. But that's kind of all I'm latching onto here. Yeah, I think it helps that I didn't see any dinosaur movies in a while because I was just happy to watch dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, that was why I enjoyed the movie. I still didn't like the characters. I'd probably rate this, what, like, I don't know, five? Oh, for believability. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, zero to ten. I was like, Mark, five-star movie? (laughs) No. Yeah, I think it's probably a five for me. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to preemptively rate the believability of Jurassic World Dominion? No. Do you know if Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard are going to make it? I don't even know that they're together. It's weird to me. Because I now basically I'm just like, ah, yes, Bryce Dallas Howard, one of our finest Star Wars directors. It's like, oh, right. She's also the romantic lead of the Jurassic World movies. I Yeah. You know, she directs like all the best episodes of The Mandalorian. I know. It's really very impressive. Um, Do you find any of these people dateable? I, I mean, I find Laura Dern dateable. Yeah, I guess she's included. Yeah, if we're including Ellie, then yes. I would not date Billy. He seems dumb. And when I read that in an earlier version, he died in the pterodactyl cage. I was like, yeah, that's what should have happened. Yeah. I would not date William H. Macy. He's basically a kidnapper. I would not date Tia Leone. Also basically a kidnapper. She totaled three cars in three years. three cars. And William H. Macy is like, you didn't total the other one. I'm like, it shouldn't be up for discussion. Yeah. And then Grant, just too intense for me. Yeah. He kind of scares me, which I like from Sam Neill, but I don't want to date. Yeah. Uh, Do you think that if they got back together, they'd stay together? I think they do get back together, and I think they do not stay together. I agree. I think they are bonded because of this experience they went through, and it will crumble, and they'll remember why they got divorced. Exactly. If you had to pick one person in Jurassic Park 3 to date, Mark, who would you choose? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious It's here. gotta it's be Sally. It's yeah. Ellie Saller. There's no other choice. Uh, maybe, like, the woman who interviews Grant on the university presentation. <laughs> maybe. But Laura Dern's right there. Right, that's the thing. Okay. So, many of the films we discuss are adapted into Broadway musicals. Will, should there be a Jurassic Park 3 musical? No. The no. people are too thin. I don't care about them. It's the animatronics that we like. And there are other stories more worthy of an animatronic musical. Yeah. Might I point you again to Michael Crichton's Congo? Now, Congo the musical, I could probably get on board with. I would watch the heck out of Congo the musical, a movie whose romance we rated 10 out of 10. <laughs> All right, I think that's about Jurassic Park it. 3, Which... only half as believable as Congo. <laughs> oh my god. I will say it has like ten times as much romance as Congo still. But Congo, 
I don't know. I think he might be together with the gorilla. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. I think that's it for this movie. Amy loves Peter. Oh, my God. Ugh. Next week, we will be watching D. Reese's directorial debut, Pariah. I have not seen it. You picked this I movie. I haven't so seen it either. I was I'm excited to check it out. Looking around for new movies to try out. Yeah, so we'll be talking Pariah, and until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps new listeners find the show. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Jurassic Park 3? A little kidnapping goes a long way to rebuilding a relationship. That's kind of fitting with what I was thinking, because I was going to say, if you and your spouse are planning to commit a crime, you should make sure only one of you is on the emails. Now that is good advice. We cannot arrest a husband and wife on the same crime. Yeah, I don't think that that's true, Dad. Uh, well, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Jurassic Park is frightening in the dark. All the dinosaurs are wrong.